Today's reading comes from Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. That is the word from our Lord. Can you be seated? Good morning. Welcome this morning. Welcome to everybody on YouTube. This morning, I bring you good tidings of great joy because Ray will be back next week. But that's not going to help you this morning, is it? No, no. This morning, we are going to look at the fourth and final chapter of Jonah. Uh, the title is called Religion Running Against God. So we find Jonah in this weird place at the end of chapter 4. He did turn back to God. He fulfilled the duty that God called him to do. And the entire city has turned from the evil that they were doing and has found faith in God. And so Jonah climbs this hill and he's looking down on the city. And Jonah's response, the Bible says, it displeased Jonah. And this word, this, this, this word in the Bible here, it doesn't mean like, oh, I don't like this. It's more like I've seen something and it makes me sick to my stomach to look at. Like you read, like you read an article about some crime done to a child or something happening to a family, and it just makes you sick to think about that happening. And that's Jonah as he looks down on Nineveh, just sick to his stomach. Which is, of course, the natural response to seeing somebody find salvation. Right? That's your response? So Jonah's faith had given way to an attitude of religion. And so 
So to try to create some type of definition, this is what I came up with. A religious attitude is what happens when we no longer see salvation as a gift from God, but rather something we have earned or we are owed, right? So, so that's my kind of working definition. As we talk through religion this morning, that's, that's what I'm going to be referring to. And so we think, what does a religious person look like? If just the first image that pops into your mind, maybe it's something like this. You know, kind of looks like a religious guy, funny hat, sits up on a chair, looks down on people. Like, maybe, that's, maybe, that, maybe that's not quite what you think. Maybe this next one is what you think. You know, Puritan, kind of looking down, burns some people at the stake, you know, kind of thinks they're better than other people, right? But maybe, maybe this next one is what you think of as a religious person. <laughs> Who put that up there? Was that, was that Nathan? Where's Nathan at? Was that? No, I put that up there, right? Sometimes, sometimes we're the religious people. And the truth is that human beings are complicated, and we're not all just one thing. I'm not all good. I'm not all bad. There's this band that I consider the greatest band in the world, and they have this song, and this song is talking about Pharaoh and Moses. And so in the song, they ask this question about Pharaoh. They say, was he a violent man? And the answer in the song is, well, he had his genocidal moments. <laughs> right? Sometimes I am a loving caring and gracious person and sometimes I am angry and I am bitter and I am selfish and so that's what stands before you today an imperfect person that song it says God called the vilest right and sometimes I look at my actions and I think that's me I am the vilest that God called and so it's easy to look at Jonah and think how could he get this so wrong? And it's, it's kind of easy to look at this scenario because this is the only story we have of Jonah, right? There's no other story in the Bible. He's mentioned, but just that he was a prophet. We don't really actually hear anything else about the entire story of Jonah's life. And so it's easy to look at this one thing and be like, man, how could Jonah do this, right? This, this negativity, this desire for wrath on somebody. But I bet that I could take pretty much anybody here and find that same wrath. And all we'd have to do is go for a drive. Yes. Right? Just, oh, the other people on the road. Sometimes we're on the road, we're like Mad Max going down the road. We're like the war boys, witness me! Right? And, you want to see somebody's wrath come out, you just, you just send them to the store or something. And, and if you're like me, sometimes, sometimes maybe it's not somebody driving. Maybe it's, you know, I, I heard somebody say this once. They were, they were driving, and they're like, I got I to gotta speed up and look at this person because I want to see if they look as stupid as they drive. <laughs> right? And that's, we... we we get this attitude about that. And it's like, man, I've never wanted the wrath of God to come down on somebody as much as I do right now. But that might not be the case for you. You might have a boss in your life who, 
seems to be in his job description to make your life as miserable as possible. Or you might have a neighbor who feels like it's their job to enforce the rules of the neighborhood, rules which they made up themselves. We are faced with the question of Jonah every single day in our life. Every time we come to somebody, we are faced with the decision that Jonah was faced. Does this person deserve God's grace or does this person deserve God's wrath? And we feel like it's our job sometimes to make that decision. And so how do we get that way? How do we go from a child of God saved by grace one second to the next second wishing that lightning would strike somebody down? And we usually find ourselves reaching that place when we become more concerned with someone else's sin than we are with our own. And when we do this, we've wandered away and we've wandered into religion. And so religion comes from a disordered life where we've put something else in God's place. So Ephesians 2.8, it gives us this nice kind of concise definition of salvation. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. And from Jonah's conversation with God, we're going to kind of break this chapter down into three sections. Verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 9, and then 10 and 11. And we're going to see two ways in which Jonah responds, and then we're going to see God's response back to Jonah. So, so let me give you your first fill in the blank. The first fill in the blank is a religious attitude comes from a disordered purpose, right? And we're going we're to see that in Jonah's attitude here. Jonah was called as a prophet in the time of Israel when they were in a period of rebellion. Things are going well on the surface, but there's a lot of spiritual sin, and there's a lot of turmoil, and God was calling the people to turn back to him. And so Jonah's not just the prophet of God, but in this time frame, he's kind of the prophet of doom, right? He's going around saying, look, you need to get things right because God's judgment is coming. And so so maybe he's wrapped up in this identity that he's created for himself as he's the prophet to proclaim judgment. And this was God sending Jonah to another nation. And Jonah says in his prayer, I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God. And so when he hears God calling him to go to this nation and proclaim judgment on them, he knows that this is an opportunity that God could show mercy. And this directly conflicts with Jonah's view of himself. He has a crisis of faith because he's the prophet of doom. And if he goes out there and proclaims and they turn to God, well, what's his value then? What is his worth then? And so we have this crisis in our own lives. Like, what am I supposed to be doing, God? What have you called me to? Am I just a plumber? Am I just a teacher? Am I just a stay-at-home mom? What value do I have? What do I bring? And so Jonah's life, his value, had slipped from God himself into this other position that Jonah saw himself in. And so this gave Jonah a misplaced sense of justice.
this, this misplaced sense of justice, because Jonah saw his value come from his role as a prophet and his heritage as an Israelite, he was God's chosen people. So there's no room for mercy or grace for Nineveh. These were evil people and they deserved the wrath of God. And as Kellen said this, uh, his first week, this was the first time God had sent a prophet out to a nation. So plenty of times the prophets had prophesied against other nations, but they always did it within Israel. It was always God letting Israel know what he was going to do. And this is the first time God had sent somebody out. And so Jonah knew if they heard the word of the Lord, there was a chance they would get mercy. And this wasn't justice in Jonah's eyes. Justice in Jonah's eyes was the wrath coming down, fireballs from heaven, and this people wiped out. And so he has this misplaced sense of justice, and it comes from a misplaced sense of righteousness. And that's your next fill in the blank. You ask, you ask, well, why does he feel this way about justice? Well, that's because of how he feels about his righteousness. As we alluded to, Jonah's righteousness was because he was God's chosen people. And so why do sometimes people have a bad impression of Christians? It's because sometimes we walk around and we're thinking like, I'm God's chosen, I'm saved, and you're not. And that just kind of makes me better than you. Or we think, you know, the Bible says that the, the wisdom of God is the foolishness of man. And we look around and we're thinking, I'm pretty smart because I got the wisdom of God, and you're just kind of stupid. Yeah. And that's this attitude that we walk around in. And that's the attitude that Jonah has here. He's like, I'm Israel. I'm a prophet of God. You are something that God burns. <laughs> Romans 7, 8, Paul says, I know nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. And so P Paul understands something here. My righteousness isn't because I'm a Christian. That's just a title. My righteousness comes from God. And this can be a tricky distinction here because God provided my righteousness and then I walk out in that. I didn't have this righteousness and then become a Christian. Because what this attitude does is it removes Christ's role from our salvation or from our righteousness. And he has this misplaced sense of righteousness. You know, Jesus didn't say they will know we are Christians by our love for one another. That's what he says they'll know our, that's how it says we'll know we're Christians. So the ultimate person of Christianity isn't what God gives me, whether it's a title or a good life or blessings. The greatest thing that God gave me was himself. And so when I have God, no action that somebody takes against me, no slight from anyone, no accusation from anyone. It doesn't mean anything anymore because I'm getting my righteousness from God. So what this person says about me, it doesn't mean anything because what they think doesn't affect who I am. What they think doesn't affect my righteousness. So where does, where does Jonah get this misplaced sense of righteousness? He gets it because he has a misplaced sense of sin. So you see these things stacking on top of each other. Somebody's not just 
out for justice because of no reason. They have this misplaced sense of justice because their righteousness is in the wrong place. And their righteousness is in the wrong place because their sense of sin is in the wrong place. And so Jonah had disregarded his own sin. He felt that he was better than the Ninevites because of his heritage. But what he forgets is if he's, if he's an Israelite and he's following God's law, then he's going to the temple. He's making sacrifices for his sin. And so blood is being shed for the sins of Jonah. And he's lost sight of this fact. And so we don't get to the point of feeling like somebody else should be condemned or like Jonah that this other nation should be condemned unless we first fail and lose sight of our own failures and sins. If knowledge of my own sin isn't present in my life, then I'm not going to see anything but somebody else's sin, right? If I'm walking around like I am God's gift to this place, then I'm like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're really wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, right? And that's, that's how Jonah's walking around here. Um, Jesus gave the example of the parable with remove the log from your own eye before you worry about the splinter from somebody else's. And and that's not comparing the sizes of sin, right? That's not, oh, look how big my sin is and look how small your sin is. That's saying, hey, let's not forget. Let's not have this disordered purpose that, that takes us off track. So that's what we see in verses 1 through 4. Now we're going to look at verses 5 through 9 and see what came from this disordered purpose. In 5 through 9, we see that Jonah has a disordered focus. And that's your next fill in the blank, a disordered focus. So even if I confess that Jesus saved me, but I am currently working to justify or hang on to my salvation, I'm no longer looking to God for my needs. And so that's kind of where Jonah is at. He's in this position. He feels full of himself. He's not seeing his own sin. And that gives him this disordered focus. So Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so what that's saying, that's not saying like, don't, don't be concerned about what you're going to do or don't be concerned about this. What that's saying is, Set your mind on the heavenly things. Let God be your righteousness. Know that your salvation comes from him. Your righteousness comes from him. And that will take you from narrowly focusing on everything around us. The most common command in the Bible is fear not. And that's because the most common promise in the Bible is I am with you. But our, our, our disordered focus, we're no longer looking to God, and that causes us to prioritize ourselves, and it gives us a focus on how it affects me. And that's your next fill in the blank. So this, this disordered purpose causes a disordered focus. And so what we see with Jonah is he's solely concerned right now with how this affects him in this moment. He goes out to this hill that overlooks the city to see what's going to happen. And, and in spite of his angry prayer, 
he's still kind of hoping that God's going to rain judgment down on them. And it says he was up on this hill for several days. So much so that he built a little thing to sit on to try to make himself comfortable. It said he spent at least one night there. And this plant withers and the scorching heat is blowing on him. And he's sitting on this hill going, this is all Nineveh's fault. Nineveh did this to me. I wouldn't be here if Nineveh wasn't who they are. I wouldn't be sitting in this sun if Nineveh hadn't done what they did, right? Do you, do you have anybody in your life that sounds familiar like that? Like everything is somebody else's fault. If, it, it's not their decisions or their actions. It's always this person did this to me. This person did this to me, right? It's all about them because they don't have a heavenly focus. And so if they don't have a heavenly focus, then they have an earthly focus. And everything is about me and what's, what's happening to me. And so this is a dangerous thing, not just because we're not looking to God anymore, but if it's all about me and I'm looking to earthly things, then it's up to me to hang on to that. And when it's up to me to hang on to that and I've placed an idol in front of God, then I will do what I must to protect that idol, right? And so it creates this focus on vengeance. And that's where we find Jonah sitting on this hill focused on vengeance. He needs, he doesn't want, he needs God's wrath to come down on Nineveh because it's all about him in that moment. It's all about what he's dealing with and what he's facing, and it's Nineveh's fault, and Nineveh's not gonna take this from him. Nineveh deserves what they get. And you see this in our society today, right? For, for, for whatever we've placed in place of God, we will fight to protect that thing. And so if, if God isn't our source, then sometimes money looks like a pretty good alternative. And if I need something, if it's, if it's me who's got to get it, and money is my object, then I'll do what I must to get that money. Somebody else, if I step on them, that's their problem. They need to find their own way, right? Or maybe it's politics. We look at politics and we say, well, if this guy gets elected, if this party is in power, if this law is passed, then I will have justice. I'm, I, I've lost focus of God and I'm looking to this. And that's why you see now in the news where people are calling for violence against other people. They're like, you passed this, so you deserve everything that comes to you. You deserve it. I hope you get it. I want to see a news article of your death, right? You go online. That is what you will see people say. And the other problem here is that as our idols crumble away, and that's what we're seeing with Jonah as he sits on this hill and his idol of his position crumbles away and he sees God's mercy come down on Nineveh, the only thing he has left is despair. Two times he says, it would be better if I had just died. It would be better if I die now than witness what I feel is wrong, than witness God's grace to come down on somebody. Right? So those are the two things that we see Jonah do. 
we see Jonah's response, which shows us where he got this disordered focus or where he got this disordered purpose and what it caused with this disordered focus. And so in verses 10 and 11, we're going to see God's response to this. And God's response is a response of patience and grace. Both times when Jonah says, God, I wish you would just kill me. It would be better if I died. And both times, God's response is, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Right? Anybody who has kids and has had a toddler throw a fit or a child throw a fit, and you're like, is it really worth this level of upsetness because your sandwich was a triangle instead of a square? Right? This, this, this level of... This, this was God's prophet that he had sent out to Nineveh. This was God's representation to Nineveh. And this is what Jonah's doing. God could have just struck Jonah down and said, you're not going to be my example like this and sent somebody else. And God would have been justified in taking that action. And yet, how does he respond to Jonah? He responds with grace and patience. And so... The key or the antidote to a religious attitude is a gospel-centered life. Now, if I go back to Ephesians 2.8 and we look back again at our, our description of salvation, it says, for grace... For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. And where we, get, where we get grace wrong and why we get twisted up inside is because we're saying, well, you want me to say what they're doing is right. But grace isn't saying that sin is wrong. Or I mean, grace isn't saying that sin is right. Grace is a way to respond to that sin. It's how we respond to the wrong. God never, God never calls it right. When we... If we see an injustice or we see a slow driver, how do we respond to that? Grace is a way for us to respond to that. And so step one in having that grace, because it's, it's hard, right? It's, it's like, how do I do that? These, these things make me so angry. How do I have a response of grace? So step one is to see them as God sees them. And so God kind of gives Jonah this example of this with the plant, right? So it says that Jonah was uncomfortable and God caused this plant to grow over him to bring him some joy. And so the next day when the plant withers and that joy is taken away, so let me, let me read it. Let's, let's read uh, verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So Jonah mourned the loss of this plant. John 3.16 that says, John 3.16 doesn't say, whoever believes 
and Luke deems appropriate, or whoever believes and Luke deems that they have passed whatever test that he has, he tells Jonah, you didn't work to make the plant grow, but there are more than 120,000 people in Nineveh. How did God look at the people in Nineveh? He looked at them as a people that he knew before the foundation of the world. He knit them together in their mother's womb. He knows the hairs on every person in Nineveh. He wasn't just their God, he was their creator, and he loved them such that he sent Jonah to try to get them on the right track, right? And, God, and, and Jonah might be in this situation like, well, God, if you love Nineveh so much, why isn't Nineveh your chosen people? Why isn't Nineveh the eye or the apple of the Lord's eye? It's not. It's Israel, God. So Exodus 19.5, it says, this is, this is God talking to the nation of Israel. It says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Right? And that's what, Nate, that's what Jonah's walking in. He's like, I'm God's treasured possession. I've kept the law. God has called me out. And then in verse 6, it says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? What does a priest do? What's the priest's job in the Old Testament? The priest was the one who entered into the temple on behalf of the people. The priest was the one who made atonement for the people and who brought reconciliation between God and his people. So what is the nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests? The nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests were intended to be a nation who went to God on behalf of the nations. That they were the example to the nations. It wasn't so that they were great. It was so that people would see Israel and God together and say there's something there. Even in the law, God makes a place for foreigners to come into the nation of Israel. I was just reading Jeremiah 22, and when he's talking about the failures of Israel, he says, don't brutalize the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. God wasn't just after the nation of Israel. He was after everybody to come in. And the foreigner who came in and said, Israel has something that I want to be a part of. God wanted them to be a kingdom of priests to mediate that. And so when we don't walk that out, I, I heard this saying once and it's always stuck with me. He said, when you, do, when you meet an accusation with an accusation, you do the work of the accuser. So if I'm at the grocery store or if I'm talking to my neighbors and somebody makes me angry or somebody calls me a name or somebody does something and I fire right back at them, I'm not doing God's work right there. I'm doing the accuser's work right there. And this is, this is who we are. We are a people who struggle with what God has called us to be. It's not... I'm a religious person. I'm not a religious person. It's in this moment I am being religious. In this moment I have lost sight of who God called me to be. And the thing is, if I look at somebody and I say, your sin is so bad, you are beyond God's grace. 
then that is me pointing to myself and saying, I am beyond God's grace because my sin is just as bad as theirs. In, in, in the Bible, you know, people love to throw this out, usually non-Christians. The Bible says, don't judge lest you be judged, right? So let's go back to our definition. Grace doesn't say that sin is okay. Grace is how we respond to sin. So what does the judge do? The judge doesn't say if you're right or wrong. The law says whether you're right or wrong. The judge passes judgment on somebody. So God's not calling us to walk through our life and saying, well, who am I to say what's right or wrong? No, the the Bible tells us what's right or wrong. What God's telling us not to do is don't go out and say, your sin is so bad, I condemn you. That's what don't judge means. It doesn't mean don't say, hey, you shouldn't do that. It means don't say because you're doing that, you're bad, you're evil, you deserve everything that you get, and I hope I'm there to see it. Sometimes we don't walk in that grace. It's not just because, well, I have this puffed up religious attitude. Sometimes a religious attitude comes from shame inside of me. And I, I knew this person, and they, these were a fantastic couple, and they were loving, and their kids were wonderful. But one time she had said, I got pregnant when I was 16 because I listened to Britney Spears. And so, so she had made these bad choices when she was younger and they had caused her to go down a path which she felt shame. 15 years later, she was still feeling this shame. And so in the law... It says, keep the Sabbath. But by Jesus' time, there were more than a hundred rules that they had established to determine what keep the Sabbath meant. And so the reason they did this is because they said, here's the law, and we're going to build a hedge around the law. And if you can't get past that hedge, then you won't sin. And that's what this person had done in their shame they said, I made these bad decisions. It came from the music I listened to. It came from the movies I watched. And so nobody should watch movies that are bad. Nobody should watch, listen to music that is not Christian. Anything that is not godly, you should not watch. There was no room for, for this call. It was what they deemed bad, what they deemed would affect somebody that's where their religious attitude came from. So it's not always a sense of being puffed up. Sometimes it's a sense of shame and we don't want to see somebody go through what we went through. And so what I want you to know, well, I guess I jumped ahead a little bit. I should give you your next fill in the blank, right? So a gospel-centered life, the first thing is, I need to remember how God sees them, every person around me. The second thing is, I need to remember how God sees me, right? And when I say me, you just plop yourself into that. That's you also. You just, you just read that as yourself. How does God see me? How does God see you? When God sees you, Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. 
when we find salvation, God sees us as beloved children. Whatever shame or whatever failings you had or have, you are God's beloved children. He doesn't look on you with disappointment and be like, well, he didn't turn out how I wanted him to. She's not quite as good of a Christian as I was hoping for. Right? You're not a disappointment. You're not an accident. God shows you, and you are his beloved sons and daughters, just as Nineveh was God's creation, and he loved them, and he wanted to see them come back to him. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God knew us. He knows us. He knew my sin, and he knows my sin. And in spite of knowing who I am, he calls us his workmanship that he has created good works for beforehand. And so it's, it's, it's hard to see that when we see our own sin, we can, we can wallow in our shame and condemn ourselves. And how can we know and how can we be sure that God does see me that way? And this is, this is your last fill in the blank. It is to remember how God saved me. And so once again, just plop yourself into the me spot. The emotion most associated with Jesus was sorrow and sadness. I, I, would, I would recommend reading this, Isaiah 53, 2 through 7. I'm just going to read two verses because it was too much to read all of it. I'm going to read uh, verse 53, 3. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When Jesus came down, he stripped away his righteousness like a robe. He walked amongst us. He was a man of sorrow because everywhere he looked, Jesus was our creator. Jesus spoke us into existence. He's walking on earth amongst us, and everywhere he looks, he sees people sprinting towards damnation with all their might and effort trying to run away from God and trying to earn their own way, and he knows where that path leads. And it breaks his heart to watch over and over people choose to try to do it on their own. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that being Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So, so I want to focus on this for a second. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus tells people, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, right? That's kind of a primary concern of our life. People who might kill my body or who might do bad things to my body. But Nahum 1.6 says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces. Now, I've never seen fire poured out, but that's kind of a scary picture, and I certainly don't want that fire poured out on me. 
And when, when, God, when the Bible talks about God's judgment and God's wrath, it talks about it like a fire being poured out. And so I don't want to diminish what Jesus suffered when he was alive, but that was just a shadow of what was coming for him. Because on the cross, Jesus took the full blunt of God's wrath. God's divine judgment was poured out like a fire onto Jesus. Was poured out onto the one, the only one who didn't actually deserve what he got. If hell is being cast away from God's presence on the cross... Jesus calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's beginning to feel the wrath of God poured down on him. The cross, that was like the easy part. The wrath that came on him after was the hard part. But it's worse for Jesus. Think about this. If I read a news article about a child who was killed on the other side of the world, I might think, that's sad. Some child died. But if somebody came to me and said, Luke, Nathan was killed. I know Nathan. I raised Nathan. Nathan has been in my life for 18 years. This wasn't some faraway God that Jesus was stripped away from. Jesus and God were together for eternity all Jesus knew was the fellowship of the Father, and this was ripped away from him. So it wasn't just this casual thing of, you know, people think of God as this far-off thing. This was all Jesus knew. And in, in this stripping away, Jesus faced hell as God turned away from him. And it says, when he was on the cross, the sky grew dark for hours. And if you look in the Bible Darkness is a precursor of God's judgment. It's always associated with God's judgment coming. And so Jesus faced judgment. He faced the wrath of God. And so here's the problem. When we look at the story of Nineveh and Jonah, we think, we, we imagine ourselves in the story of Nineveh and Jonah, and we say, boy, I feel like if I was Jonah, I would have made a better decision. But the problem is, we're not Jonah. We're Nineveh. We were the ones sprinting to damnation. We were the ones, as fast as we can, hurling ourselves towards hell and death and separation from God with all of our might. And Jesus was the better Jonah, the Jonah who came down, who saw us kind of turn around and giving God the finger going, I'm going to do what I want, God. And God didn't say, you know what? Here you go. God said, no, you are my beloved children, and I'm going to do everything I can to turn you back to me. And that's what he did. That's, that's the story of Nineveh and Jonah. God, so sometimes we like to refer to these people as I've heard him referred to as brother abrasive or sister sandpaper, you know. Sometimes we think like, oh, God, put this person in my life that I would know patience, that I would learn to endure them. 
God put that person in your life, the most hurtful person, the person who turns around and calls you one day and says, hey, can you help me? And then turns around the next day and calls you and curses you out for who you are. And I've been there. I've been on the receiving end of, thanks, Luke. And then the next day, how dare you? And I'm thinking, all I did was help you. And we want to we we be like, you know what? That's fine. And we have a choice. Every hurtful person that Jesus has put into our life, has he put us there to, for us to grow patience? Or has he put them in our life so that we could show them the grace that God showed us? That we could show them the love that God showed us? That we could be the mediator between God and the sinful person in my life that I could bring them together, restore that gap that was there and show them the love of God that God showed me because when I was sprinting towards hell, he sent someone into my life. If that is you this morning, if you feel like I have been sprinting straight to hell all of my life, then this morning, God has sent you a message to say no, don't go that way because I love you and I care about you and I want you to be my beloved son and daughter. And if that's you, I would welcome you to come up and I would be, love to pray with you that you would have that same salvation, that love, that grace, that mercy this morning. So let's, let's, let's pray. Lord, you... You are the great God, the creator of all things. You spoke everything into existence with a word. You are the definition, the example of love and grace and of mercy. And you've called us to be that to the people in our lives. And so I ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would make real that grace that's in our lives, that love that's in our life. So when I go out and get on the road, when I go to the grocery store, when I talk to my neighbor, when I talk to my colleague, no matter how bad they've been to me, help me to be that grace to them that you have been to me. Help us to be that light shining on the hill, the light in the darkness for everyone around us that is headed the wrong way. Let us be that example of light to them. Help us to be those people, Lord. We ask it in the name of Jesus, and we pray, amen. amen. So this was, our, this was our last week of Jonah. You don't have to watch me doing this anymore. Yeah. Right? But next week, we're starting a great series called... Uh, from burnout to, it's called Reset, from burnout to balance. Yes, that's what it's called. It's going to be a great series because we are headed into it, right? Summers, I mean, it's still hot, but the summer's on the downtrend now. Kids are about to start back in school. Things are going back to normal. And if you're feeling burnout like the rest, like a lot of us are, it's going to be a good series. So I'm going to be up here. If you have questions or criticisms or you want prayer, I'll be up here with, with any other elders that are available. I hope you guys have a great week. God bless you.